Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. In this episode, we're going to explore a technology called Li-Fi, which will see your internet connection coming through light bulbs. We talk to a cybersecurity expert and we hear from an ethical hacker called Freaky Clown. That's all to come, but it was all sparked by one of the conversations I had for last month's episode when I travelled to CERN to talk to some of the people involved in the birth of the web 30 years ago. One of the people I spoke to was Jean-Francois Groff. He's the man who was seconded to Tim Berners-Lee to help him create the web in those early days. He's still working on web-based technologies today. And this bit of the conversation got cut from last month's episode because, as you probably noticed, it was quite long enough already. But I wanted to share it with you now. Jean-Francois began telling me about how the introduction of HTTP had improved on FTP, which made the accessing of information through the web much quicker, bringing concerns to those who were close to it at the time. HTTP was more efficient than FTP, but because it was more efficient, it had the potential to to create a lot more stress on the network, because if it's so easy, you just click and you get the document, it consumes bandwidth. And and a bunch of experts, including at CERN, Brian Carpenter, who became chair of ISOC afterwards, uh, Bob Metcalf of 3M, really high-tech guys, they said, hey, the, the internet's going to crash. If the web gets any sufficient traction, it's going to crash the internet like crazy. You know? And and that didn't happen because the telecom improvements went faster than we expected. And today I'm, I, I am amazed that in my household, you, I can have two of my boys, you know, playing online games while listening to music, which is also streamed, and chatting on, a, you know, on their keyboard. And, you know, so the people are multitasking, but the household has like four streams per person. I, you know, I sometimes watch something while I work on something else as well. And it's all you know, going on you know, Netflix. You know, Bill Gates imagined in the 90s, okay, let's do a video distribution service. And people said he was... Delusional. Really? That, that's printed words from experts that Bill Gates is delusional. I think he had learned from his mistake that in 81 he said, hey, with the IBM PC you got 640k of memory, that's plenty. Who would ever want more than 640k? What use could there possibly be? Right? Which, well, when, when the biggest computer at the time had 64k, it made sense. We give it 10 times as much. What else do you want? So he learned that mistake from that mistake. And he said, yeah, we're going to have video online. Yeah. You'll have the whole world at your fingertips. Then he realized, okay, we're not going to do this with Microsoft Network. We're going to do this with the internet. And, and he switched. Uh, but today you have Netflix, which started as a you know, video rental company. Well, they just mailed you the, the disc. But then now they're producers. They produce video. So anything that, that takes less than video is, is trivial, the consumption of data, so I'm not worried at all. Most of us still get our internet through wires under the ground, but the future promises that many more people will get their internet from satellites in low Earth orbit. Um, there's something happening in the next two, three years. You're going to have 
uh, new constellations of, of data satellites that will fly in a, in a low Earth orbit. So the, the geostationary orbit is 36,000 kilometers away from Earth, so that you send a signal and you take it back. Uh, given the speed of light, it's already like one-third to one-half of a second, just to go up and down. But with these satellites, we'll, we'll be flying like 200, 300 kilometers from Earth. It'll be just instant. Mm -hmm. So you can do really critical, real-time stuff through satellite. And these satellites, they will blanket the world with data for free. It's like terabytes per second of data. They talk to each other with lasers. Uh, you think we have a lot of bandwidth today? You haven't seen nothing yet. Because there's already three competitors doing that. They're, they're just launching them. Like last month, in January, they, they launched the first bunch of one web satellites with a Soyuz. They, they ordered 150 rockets. They already ordered them. And they're going to send 600 satellites. And then SpaceX is talking about sending 5,000 satellites because, of course, they have reusable rockets and just the cost of fuel for them. So they're going to blanket the Earth. We're going to have free bandwidth. It will be a freemium. I think bandwidth will be freemium. So anybody, these 8 billion people in the world, will have free bandwidth for the basics. And if you want your video, you want Bollywood, you'll pay something. Okay. So that's coming. Yeah. Uh, I'm very excited about that. That's what I'm working on for... for working on applications which will make use of this universal, you know, free bandwidth. Now, sadly, for obvious reasons, I can't tell you about what Jean-Francois is working on, but it all inspired me to want to know more about future technologies around the web. So I spoke to Professor Harold Haas, Professor of Mobile Technologies at the University of Edinburgh, and a man who hopes that one day there will be wireless data streaming from every light bulb using technology called Li-Fi. Well, Li-Fi um, is basically wireless communications um, that we know of uh, in, in, in current systems where uh, we use Wi-Fi or, or, or cellular networks using radio waves. And Li-Fi has a similar effect of transmitting data wirelessly, but um, we are not, unlike the current systems, we don't use radio, we don't use RF spectrum, we use the light. We use visible light and infrared light to transmit uh, or to build essentially wireless networks. And um, th that has been enabled by, by the, um, the LED revolution. So LEDs are at the heart of, of Li-Fi technology. Basically, what we, what we do is we take a light bulb in, in a room and, and, and the light bulb would basically provide a service, which is illumination. But with Li-Fi, it becomes a communication device. So it becomes a wireless router. It, it became, becomes a device you connect your laptop with, your, your, your smartwatch with, your, your, your smartphone with, and you have bi-directional mobile communications using, using light, illumination. Oh, the benefits are manifold. Um, first and foremost, um, the, the, the main reason why I've been looking into this maybe uh, now, now 16 years ago is, is the spectrum crunch. So radio communications, uh, if, you go, if you go to an airport, if you go to a hotel, if you go into crowded areas, uh, we all have suffered sort of a, a, sort of a, a, a very poor wireless connectivity with, with very low data rates. And, 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 and that, is, that is 
one of the reason is is that the 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 wireless data traffic um, the, the, the data traffic per year increases by about sixty percent. So we every year we we need uh, and, and demand more wireless data traffic, and that's an exponential increase. But the radio spectrum is limited; it is fixed; it is it's very very scarce. And this, as we see now with the auctions looming on on five G spectrum, it is a very scarce and expensive resource. However, the visible light spectrum is, is, is also part of the electromagnetic spectrum, but it's, it's free and it's, it's huge. It's about 2,600 times larger than the entire radio spectrum. There we include sort of the infrared in that as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a resource that is 2,600 times more than the entire radio spectrum. It's free, it's safe, and it's secure uh, in, many, in many, many regards as well. So it is... Therefore, the reasons why we do this is the spectrum crunch. We, we basically unlock uh, wireless connectivity in all the, the AI-driven smart world where things reside in a cloud and you have your smart autonomous vehicles and drones and, and cars and, and you, you make your home smart. So wireless connecti- connectivity is sort of a nervous system that we have to build in order to enable that vision of smart connected devices. So, And that, that, that requires that. And then the other... The other advantages I've, I've alluded to is, is security. I mean, light can be contained spatially much, much better than radio. First and foremost, light doesn't go through a wall. So if you are sitting in your room with your four walls, and uh, you can be assured that your neighbor in the neighbor, neighboring room won't get access to the wireless data you send via light. And that's a profound advantage in, in, in a world where cybersecurity becomes more and more important, especially when, when it comes to autonomous vehicles, autonomous cars, autonomous drones, that you don't want to turn into, into weapons. And therefore, you need, you need to have a, a very strong um, level of security around that connected device. And, and the other one is, is, is healthy. I mean, um, they still, I mean, the, the World Health Organization has still classified um, some of the, the radio communication system as uh, potentially cardiogenic, um, but it's not proven, there's no, no evidence. But, but if we use light uh, for data communication, we can be assured that we are not having any issue around, around uh, um, safety and, and security. And then there's additional advantages, is, 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 is for example, Light can be used in areas where where radio can't be used, for example, in intrinsically safe environments, petrochemical plants, in oil platforms, and it can be used where radio doesn't work simply, it is underwater. So you can't have wireless communications uh, between remote operated vehicles underwater, but you could use their lights to, to connect and exchange data between the vehicles, or also from the vehicle, from a a submarine basically to to a ship for example using 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 the visible light spectrum would i have to have my light turned on in order to have my li-fi light illumination is one service i mean i always compare it to to a smartphone i mean a smartphone evolved from a mobile phone uh, first the first mobile phones supplied one service is mobile telephony now your smartphone I mean you run hundreds of applications the light the light bulb will see a similar transition at the moment it it provides illumination, one service, but with, with Li-Fi enabled, it will become a platform. It will be able, able to provide many, many services, meaning that you can turn off your light um, to a level that you won't be able to recognize it, but it would still be able to transmit data. 
So that can be done technically by using the infrared spectrum or it can be done by dimming them down and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and uh, using very low signals for data communication. So that is all possible. How far away is this? When, is it a thing that exists now? Have you demonstrated it? Oh, uh, yes. I think, uh, I mean, I've, I've, I found it, uh, Pure Li-Fi, uh, the spin-out company in Edinburgh, and, and they, they, they basically sell modules, the technology that, that enables um, uh, sort of use cases with light communication technology. And, and uh, they, 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 ha they have now demonstrated at Mobile World Congress, for example, um, about um, four weeks ago, a one gigabit integrated LIFA modem module into a laptop. And, and that, that is basically giving one gigabit uh, bi-directional communication. So the, the uplink was about 400 megabit and the downlink was one gigabit. Uh, but it also is 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 uh, basically demonstrated in the past via dongles and and, and luminaires. So Pilifi has partnered with Lucibel, a French uh, company, where, where they have integrated their their technology. So it is out there in in twenty countries in a more than a hundred use cases where Lifi technology is is deployed. Uh, for example, we have also equipped a school here in 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 Scotland in in Ayrshire, the Kyle Academy, one classroom equipped with the with Li-Fi. But if, so if I wanted it in my house, would I have to have my house completely rewired? Uh, no, um, you can use a technology that is called Powerline technology. So basically that does what it does. It, uh, it, it connects to your ISP provider, your ADSL port, and then uses the, the two wires, the mains power supply to distribute the data in a house. And then it reaches the lamp, and then from there you take take it and, and distribute it. That's one way of doing it using retro uh, retrofits. Um, in new installation, you would use uh, Ethernet powered lights. It's a standard called uh, Power over Ethernet a (PoE), and, and that means that uh, the the lamps would be would be simply connected to a data cable that also at the same time provides power has a big advantage in the installation costs because you wouldn't need an electrician to install such lamps. So power over Ethernet enabled lamps is sort of the, the lighting technology of the future and, and is used in, in many new installations. So these are two, two options that, that you could use now. But in terms of the distances that this can travel, I think that really depends on your, on your light. Um, so for example, imagine a car headlight uh, use the latest technology, um, so you, that covers 60, 600 meters. And that would be the distance that you would basically be able to send your Li-Fi links uh, when you think about car-to-car -car communication, for example. Uh, but if you, if you think about your illumination at home, it basically is designed to cover about three, three to four meters, and then that, that, that is also then the, the communication range. It really depends on how your luminaire is structured and designed and, and how much power is getting out of it in terms of optical power. Um, you could, could use basically any light source uh, to transmit data. Uh, for example, if you think about the, the status light of your kettle at home or your fridge, your freezer, um, at the moment it just signals the state whether things are on or off or standby. But now imagine you can transmit a gigabit data out of it. You then can connect that device to the internet. You could, could do predictive maintenance. The device could be intelligent, basically telling, realizing that, that a kettle is about to break, the, uh, the heating wire is about to break in two weeks' time, uh, that the kettle could start searching Amazon for good deals and order itself from Amazon and, and basically um, without any human in, in intervention. I mean, you, you really could, could create an entirely new sort of um, smart world um, 
with 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 building building these these kind of systems. So yes, you 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 can use basically any any light source to do that. It, if it's if it's a, a beam, if it's a laser beam, or whether it's a sort of a, 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 a illumination with with a very broad wide coverage. With any new technology, there are barriers and hurdles to cross. This is a disruptive technology. Uh, I, I would I would argue because um it, it's a multi-trillion dollar industry that is governing wireless communications it's, it's the radio rf communications industry there's there's billions and billions of investment into into that technology and and uh, for example a good example is 5g there is a huge investment into 5g and, and obviously understandably the industry wants to to monetize these investments and therefore they are perhaps not commercially very interested in in, in, in bringing yet another wireless communication technology onto the market. Um, I, I think that, that that is a commercial barrier that, that we, 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 we see. On the other hand, uh, if, you, if you look at the lighting industry, um, they, they face a fundamental problem because uh, the LED light bulbs, they, they last, um, if it's correct what's on the, on, the, on the package, 20 years and more. So that industry won't sell these devices anymore and they need to diversify. And one way of diversifying is basically sell light bulbs that also provide communication capability. So there's a diversification avenue to create new business models in that industry. So therefore, I always see this as a pull and push mechanism. I think LIFI will be pulled into the markets via the lighting industry and it will be then pushed into the wireless communications industry because it's inevitable as we need more spectrum, we need more data communications capability, so it will eventually be adopted in, in, in a broad sense. But they are primarily commercial barriers, so um, technically I think there's a lot of work being done by, by others, by us and so on, so that, that the integration at the moment is, is, an, is, is a challenge of miniaturization. So miniaturizing the existing technology into smart little modules, chips, that that would then be basically subsumed into into smartphones, and and laptops and lamps and uh, and smartwatches and so on. So that 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 is that is a standard process that we know. But it's it's primarily commercial challenges that that we are we are facing. And is it are, are the speeds currently that are are they com- comparable? In in terms of the raw speed, uh, the, the commercial products are in in the same range as you have with Wi-Fi or lower. And that is primarily because we use off-the-shelf LED lights that, that have limitations. And also um, the integration and the miniaturization is, is one of the reasons. However, having said that, um, this year the Pilify have demonstrated one gigabit at Mobile World Congress. And that is the at the upper end what what you would currently achieve with Wi-Fi. Um, and... Um, we see a pathway, a roadmap to basically take that one gigabit to 10 gigabit, from 10 gigabit to 20 gigabit, from 20 gigabit to 100 gigabit, and from 100 gigabit to a terabit. So we clearly see that roadmap. And I'm actually starting with collaborators here in the UK, uh, a research project in, in, in the 1st of April that looks at terabit wireless connectivity at home and in, in, in buildings. So I think we have a clear roadmap to towards achieving that. But yes, we are we are at the, at the start of things. But we always forget um, when we think about Wi-Fi that 15 years ago, 
Wi-Fi was a dongle or a module you had to integrate into your laptop separately. It wasn't by default that your laptop was Wi-Fi enabled. And, and it's, it's 15 years. It's not, not long ago. So we, 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 we tend to forget that every technology has, a, has an introduction curve. Um, and, and we see the similar thing with Li-Fi. But as I said, we have more than 100 use cases in more than 20 countries. So the adoption is increasing And we are at the, at the bend of, of a hockey stick in, in, that, in that regard. I mean, who would have foreseen the, the success of the smartphone? I mean, that, that's part of the internet. Um, uh, and the mobile computing was basically the, the killer app that, that people were looking for when they, they thought about 3G in, in mobile communications. Um, and, 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 and that also is, is a bit of a challenge when you, when you try to build business models, when you say, I want this kind of investment to achieve X, Y, Z. Um, you, you really can't predict technology. It, it, is, it is very much uh, depends on, on how people like it, how much it is, it is taken up and how, how the technology can, can reach end customers and, 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 and how they, they use it. Um, and I mean, with the Internet, I mean, we are, we are still not sort of at the end where, where this all will lead, but it has profoundly uh, changed our private lives and our businesses in a sense that we are talking now of the fourth industrial revolution and, um, and, th and that, that many, many businesses are now basically rely and depend on the internet to exist. Otherwise, they won't have a business. And, and that dependency is enormous. And I think if you, if, if you I mean, if you go somewhere and, um, and uh, in a hotel or whatever, I mean, The wireless connectivity is, 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 is as important as any other utility um, like gas, water and, and so on, and perhaps maybe more important than, than, than water supply these days. So it, 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 it has profoundly been part of our, our DNA of our modern societies that, that, that can be taken away. Li-Fi is a fascinating bit of technology and it calls to mind the smart homes of the future or even today with everything from the doorbell to the central heating connected to the web, a concept known as the Internet of Things. And while Li-Fi might be more secure than Wi-Fi due to being contained within the walls of the house, everything being connected to the Internet does flag up security concerns. I caught up with Dr. Jessica Barker, named as one of the top 20 most influential women in cybersecurity in the UK and co-founder of Cygenta, a company dedicated to helping businesses with their cybersecurity. We work with all sorts of different sectors um, and we look at the technical, the physical and the human side. So we do technical testing you know, of their networks. Um, we do awareness raising of employees because a lot of the risks come from how people engage with technology um, without necessarily knowing that they are engaging in risky behaviors. Um, and then also physical security, you know, how easy is it to break in? How good are the CCTV cameras? Things like that. Something of a buzz phrase or buzzword recently is the Internet of Things. Yes, it's kind of like you know, smart TVs, um, Internet-enabled kettles, which, of course, we all want. Um, lots of people talk about kind of Internet-connected fridges, but I'm not sure how many are actually out there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the fact that you can't buy a TV now um, that isn't a, a smart TV um, and, you know, people having their doorbells connected to the internet you know wi-fi cameras uh, in the home 
that kind of thing. Well, I'm buying a fridge at the moment. and You can buy an internet-enabled fridge, but they cost nearly £2,000. And I don't really know what, what it offers apart from automatically ordering food that I have run out of. Yeah. <laughs> which which I'm very capable of doing. And there is a shop at the end of the road, so it's not a problem. <laughs> you can always use Alexa or whoever to remind yeah. you to buy such food. This is a question I have, is how much do we actually want these things? And how much do the manufacturers look at whether we want them? Or is there just a, an assumption that because they can do it, they will? So you then, you know, the old uh, Jurassic Park quote of like, just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean you should. Yeah. Obviously, some of the internet connected stuff is is great and probably very helpful for people. But others, I, I'm not sure if there's a market for it, really. Whether there is actually a market for some of those applications, the Internet of Things promises to grow rapidly. In 1990, there were just 0.3 million things connected to the Internet. That rose to 90 million by 1999 and 9 billion in 2013. Beyond the smart home devices, there's wearable tech like the devices that track your run or cycle to work, connected cars where your phone and watch sync to your car as you approach, or even your electric car that connects to the network when you plug it into charge, uploading information about your trip and consumption. Entire smart cities, applications for agriculture, healthcare, retail and energy with smart grids being able to monitor and quickly rectify power outages, diverting power to specific areas or even recognising outages in individual homes. The Internet of Things is well beyond 9 billion now and only set to continue to grow just so many more devices online that then these devices can be taken over and used for malicious purposes without the owners having any idea that that's being done. So we actually have seen in a way an internet of things cyber attack. So there was a distributed denial of service attack on uh, DIN. I think it was a couple of years ago, Twitter, Facebook, a bunch of other sites, really large sites were taken offline for quite a while, you know, maybe a day or so. And it particularly affected the US. There had been an attack which targeted the servers of some of those companies. And the attack was leveled through Internet of Things devices, CCTV. Cameras were being taken over and the traffic was basically pointed at the servers that were hosting Twitter and and other sites. And then also there are, you know, the kind of thing that we would be used to seeing in maybe like sci-fi or TV programs where you have an internet enabled house and, you know, potentially that has some kind of impact on your physical security. Some stuff is actually quite helpful from a security point of view. So um, I travel a lot for work, as does my husband. So actually being able to turn lights on and off random times and stuff like that is actually quite helpful from a physical security perspective but I guess there's there's always the danger of people that you wouldn't expect so maybe like the teenager in your neighborhood you know wanting to just cause a bit of trouble and and trying to target people that way how much that kind of attack is going to affect most of us day to day probably not very likely yet but we're thinking about internet of things here in relation to the home But we now have lots of companies, of course, that are embracing Internet of Things. That then presents just another attack service 
for cyber criminals who are already targeting companies of all sorts of sizes through other means. If you have lots of internet enabled devices, then that opens up just another surface area that the um, the attacks could take place. One of the ways companies can test and improve their cybersecurity is to employ the services of an ethical hacker. I spoke to one known as FC or Freaky Clown. What does the head of ethical hacking do? <laughs> so uh, basically all of the same things a, a criminal hacker would do apart from we work for the companies themselves. So a client will come to us and say, can you help us figure out all of the security issues with our company? Um, whether or not that's uh, technical or physical or as Jess's side, um, the human side, figure out what's what's wrong with their security by doing all of the same things that criminals do to break into places so whether or not we're going in over the internet or breaking in through like their wireless or breaking in like sort of physically into their buildings and then getting into their networks that way every new technology can be for bad as well as good right it's the same with any any invention you you can take a fork and use that to eat a salad or you can take a fork and use it to kill someone every single technology has a bad side to it and you have to always be thinking about how would criminals use this in order to do what they want to do which is generally make money but how, how could somebody make money out of my wi-fi coming from my light um well very very easily so if they if they took over your uh, network connection that you believe is safe then they can start capturing all of your details that you use to log on to the bank they can then log on to the bank as impersonating you and steal all your money or they can just take stuff about you um you know, and literally steal your whole identity and start you know opening up credit cards in your name and with your address and start sending you stuff that you probably don't want and things like that so every little bit of information can be used against you in some way the more stuff there is the more insecurities there are the more work i have <laughs> <laughs> so my, my job is to always make myself unemployable yeah, if, if security was fixed, then I wouldn't have a job. Simple as that. And that's what we're all aiming towards in this industry, is trying to make everyone secure and put everyone else out of a job so that we can go off and do baking or woodwork or something. I was beginning to feel like the only safe computer in terms of hacking is one that's air-gapped. Now, an air-gapped computer is one which has no connections, wireless or otherwise, to the outside world. But Freaky Clown made me question... Even the safety of that. Even a computer that's switched off, like encased in concrete, isn't going to be secure if someone can get to it. I've only ever seen one air-gapped system that was actually quite good. I I can't talk much about it, but it it was actually the only time I've ever seen it implemented well. Almost every time some company comes to us and says, we've got an air-gapped system, it's not. Um, Generally what happens is there are two separate networks and they'll have some form of communication between them generally what we call sneaker net sneaker net is basically people's feet right so they'll have a usb stick from one thing they'll transfer stuff onto it and they'll walk that over to the other network and plug in that usb um that is not an air gap network that's a network with a very very slow connection rate um and that's how um, you know, stuff like the Stuxnet happened. That was via a USB stick into a, an air gap network. Stuxnet was a malicious attack against uranium centrifuges um, for basically weaponizing uranium. 
and it was it was an amazing attack. It was a very specific uh, specific attack. So this USB device was plugged into the network. It attacked a very specific controller that basically spanned the centrifuges up too fast, so they literally exploded. Um, and it took out Iranian uranium uh, production for some years. Kim Zeta did an amazing book on it. There's a massive backstory to it, and it's a fascinating read. If nuclear facilities have air gaps, computers that aren't air gaps, then what's the hope for anyone to be able to secure? I mean, what, what do you do about it? Actually, you know what? It is, it is kind of bad, but it's still better than we had yesterday, right? So every day we get better. We don't really take into account how far we've come. So in like the 60s, 70s, we didn't have passwords on computers. It wasn't a thing. It wasn't needed. As you go through the years, it has got a lot better. We, we are better than we were a year ago. You know? And it's going to take time. Humanity takes time to solve problems. And the internet is very new. So maybe in 100 years we'll have it solved. But all the time that you're working on it, there's the bad guys working against you, right? Yeah, it's, it's a cat and mouse game, and it will be with everything. Like, yeah, you know, we'll we'll stop something. They'll come up with something new. We'll stop that, and we'll always end up stopping it. Obviously, one of the technology that we're in the early days of at the moment is self-driving cars. How safe are they from hacking? I don't think they're as good as people think they are. They're we're already seeing attacks against them. Um, like you know, through that through their visual acuity systems. So there's a thing called like adversarial imaging, which attacks like the road signs and stuff like that. So you see like stop signs with just slight pieces of reflective tape on them that really mess up how a car sees a stop sign. And if a car doesn't stop at a stop sign, well, that's going to be a fatal incident right there. Um, so yeah, we're already seeing attacks against them. And as with any technology, as it becomes more prevalent, we'll see more attacks against them. And I don't know really how that's going to play out. Again, that's going to be a, another cat and mouse thing. You know, sometimes security researchers themselves like will will highlight things just because it is a security issue. And unfortunately, criminals will see that and be like, oh, this is great. I can utilize this as a, an attack until it's fixed. But that's that's kind of a, a double-edged sword that security researchers have to like balance, which is like, do we tell everyone about this issue that could affect loads of people? Or do we keep it quiet? And there's always this really tough call about, like, when do you say something publicly about the thing? And often what will happen is you'll find a, a vulnerability in a piece of software or piece of hardware, and you'll go to the, the, the makers of it, and often they don't care. They won't fix it. What do you do then as a, a researcher? You go, well, I've, I've reported this vulnerability to the company, and they're not going to fix it, but it could affect the security of millions of people. So... I have to publicly explain it. And that does then open up like, you know, it's almost like blackmailing the company with like publicity. You know, it's like, we've now told the whole world about it, so you need to fix it. Mm. But again, some companies will, will really uh, go against that and really hammer down on uh, security researchers. Really? Well, what's the, I mean, is that a money-motivated thing? They just don't want to spend money on it or...? Well, it all, it all inevitably comes down to money, but a lot of them, they, they kind of just react badly. If, you, if you've spent you know, years and millions building a piece of software and then some kid from the internet comes along and says, you have no idea who I am, you don't know my background or anything, 
or you know, I work for this company and we found this security fault, then they're they're going to react badly. Sometimes. Mm-hmm. Unless they're at a certain security maturity. And then they'll be like, actually, all right, thanks for finding that. Maybe even here's a reward. So there's a whole system called bug bounties where companies sign up to them. So um, there's several now. Um, and if you report a vulnerability through them, which is like a nice, easy way of doing it, it's like forms to fill out um, with proof of concepts, then, then you get a reward. And so people can make literally millions out of this. Gosh, okay. Do you? I do all right. <laughs> yeah, I'd really love an X-ray machine and stuff like that. Like just <laughs> there's loads of stuff that I really want to play with um, that just nobody's ever ever gonna lend us, you know, because it will get broken. Okay. What so, do you want to do with an X-ray machine? X-ray machines are great because you can X-ray things and look at. Well, <laughs> I know that sounds stupid, but like if if you're if you're looking at a piece of equipment that is um, you know, of a, a certain type, shall we say, um, and it's like FIPS compliant and you can't take it apart, how do you find out what's in it? So you X-ray it. Um, you know, the, there's been a couple of times with, with uh, uh, where we've managed to convince dentists to take X-rays of small objects so that we can sort of see into them. Um, but, yeah, having our own one would be amazing. Okay, so if anyone wants to donate... Donate, donate an X-ray machine. It's based in the office. <laughs> There was a, a thing about three or four years ago, a university was getting rid of a, a proton accelerator. Um, and they were like, oh, it's free to anyone as long as you can come and collect it. And it was like 150 tons or something, and it was like 80 feet long. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cool. You're going to need a couple of wheelbarrows. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Thanks to Freaky Clown and Dr. Jess Barker of Sygenta for their insights into the security issues of the web and future tech on the internet. And thank you very much to Professor Harold Haas. If you're interested in LiFi, you can see it in action at the IOP's new building in King's Cross in London. Physics World is, of course, the magazine of the Institute of Physics, and you can even get the chance to meet and hear Harold speak at a special event in that King's Cross building on May the 16th this year. You can find details of that on the IOP's website. But I'd just like to say a very special thank you to all of you who've been leaving such lovely reviews of the podcast recently. It really is wonderful to hear how much you're enjoying the Physics World Stories podcast. And don't forget that we do have a weekly podcast which focuses more on the science news each week. Speaking of which, you may have noticed some news about a black hole. No prizes for guessing. It's what I'll be looking into for next month's episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. I'll see you then. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.